Ali Holland. Great to meet you. You too, Vincent. Yeah. So we're going to go for a jaunt. We're going to take a little spin across the border. Excellent, excellent. The chariot is a motorbike. You enter Louth as a pillion passenger from County Down. Get you rigged up then. But not before a bit of preparation. I'll take off my berry, so... Oh, take off your berry, yeah. There's my Harley helmet. Good, yeah. Looks like the right size. Gloves, very important. Right. Yeah. If you, yeah, if you get on it like a horse, mm-hmm. Vincent, go for it. Yeah, hop. Sit. Yeah. Away. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so you just lean with me anyway. Yeah, I'll I will. Go, I'll go handy. Yeah. Won't do any wheelies. No. <laughs> so, <laughs> break for the border. We cross the border on what, during the Troubles, would have been called an unapproved or concession road, a road without a customs checkpoint. We lean into the landscape of the beautiful Cooley Peninsula, Carningford Loch in view, the sweeping landscape of mythology, hard history, rich culture and resounding music. Loud is the smallest county in Ireland, the place of the mythical hero Cúchulainn and the Thorn Bow Cúlinge, the cattle raid of Cooley, foundational stories of Ireland and how we place ourselves in the gap of the world. Armagh, Down, Meath and Monaghan all connect to Louth, a county named for the harvest god, Lu. It's a borderland, but it's also a centre and an edge and utterly its own place. You're listening to The County Measure. I'm Vincent Woods. We're making a journey around Ireland 100 years after independence to get a measure, to get many measures of all 32 counties. We're looking at place, landscape and the people who shape their lives within these boundaries of community and county. In this series, I'm hoping to get a fresh understanding of each county and its people as we shape a radio atlas of Ireland. Thank you for delivering me safely across the border into County Louth. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. And I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that trip. My driver across the border is Ollie Holland, a singer-songwriter who spent many years living out of Ireland and returned to his native Louth 20 years ago. We'd like to get back to home and Louth. Yeah, you feel like you have to come home, all right, yeah. Don't think I could see myself living anywhere else, you know. It's a different from Australia when there's no greenery at all, you know. It's lovely. Ireland's gorgeous when the sun's shining, nowhere like it. But there is a certain pull about home, isn't there? I mean, this, we all have it. That's it, yeah. I think it's in the DNA. Would you have been very conscious of the border growing oh, yeah. up? Sure, it was in the news every day. 
there was a bomb here and there was a bomb there and there was someone shot there. You know, we used to go down. We'd be shopping in Newry a lot because you get more things down there, records and stuff like that. And um, you'd be stopped and the gun, we'd point it in at your head in the window of the, at the border down, down at Carrigarnan. Yeah, it's great that all that's gone, hopefully forever. Hopefully forever. The history of the border and border life is inscribed deep in the psyche of many people here. Who could forget the days of forced cross-border road closures by the British Army, customs and security checkpoints, and the shadow of violence, a never-present reality? We're here at Pat Kelly's Shed and Border Museum just outside Kilcurry in Louth. So it's not all that surprising that one man has made his own dedicated border museum in a shed beside his home, a bare mile from the border with South Armagh. Hello, Pat. How are you doing? Vinny, yeah. Vincent, good to meet you. Lovely. No, Vinny will do as well. Pat meets me outside the shed, the door of which is a replica of the one at 10 Downing Street. And we might go in and and see what's there before we, we chat about it. You'll be surprised. It's been my first time to go into a replica of 10 Downing Street. Ah, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> oh, fantastic. Oh, I don't know where to begin. Uh, the shed is about 50 metres by 30, good height in it, and packed full of fascinating things. Mannequins in uniforms, I think variously of the British Army, the Irish Army, or you see flags, emblems. Hats, images, I see Martin McGuinness, Jerry Adams, I see the Queen. So there's a lot packed in here, Pat. Tell me how it started. Oh, it started back in the Troubles, back in by 78, 79. That then you had the customs and the whole lot, you know, and the army up here and the guards. And every matter where you went, you were stopped, checkpoints, show your laces and open your boot and not answered, you know. When I started collect first, it was all in the kitchen. No one tapped the kitchen units. And my better half there, he wasn't too happy. <laughs> so we done was then, he said, at a spare shed. So we had used that shed, you know, so that's what happened. Were you accused of being a hoarder? I was. <laughs> I was, big time. <laughs> but it's a hasty hoarder, you know, a hasty hoarder. It's very important. There's a story to everything. The latest thing I had now was a, a piano. Just in here, and the, on the other end of the shed. Mm. Um, that was a fine piano, yeah. Bobby Sands' Sands mother. image on it. Ah. They died there a while back, you know, I'm not sure the date. And uh, she gave the piano to a good friend of hers. So she donated the piano to me. Which is lovely. Yeah, you know, remarkable. I mean, there's great history in that. Yeah, I mean, one never thinks of Bobby Sands' mother playing piano. And Pat, did... Somebody say to me that you have an orange sash. Yeah. I do love an old orange sash. I do. (laughs) Here's the sash. As I hold the sash, which is traditionally worn during the 12th of July marches that celebrate the victory of the Protestant King William of Orange in the Battle of the Boyne in 1689, Pat hands me something unexpected. A gun. 
<gasps> first time I've held such a gun. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, all of that's so important in terms of history. Yeah. Pat's Border Museum has thousands of items from both sides of the sectarian divide that make the border and the trouble seem very real again. He has road signs indicating snipers at work, old rifles, images of barbed wire checkpoints, and of course, the Union Jack and the tricolour flags. Gosh, it's a treasure trove. It's sobering to hold a rubber bullet, solid, heavy, almost as long as my hand, and to imagine it being used on people. The objects of war don't lose their power. The ephemera of posters and propaganda are invaluable insights into a world that is almost close enough to touch. People keep saying the same thing. We didn't see the half of it. No, we didn't hear the half of it. You're honouring history, you're honouring lives and the complexity of history and lives too. All these things help us to remember and put a context on, on recent history. I suppose most places, most counties can be read in terms of psychogeography, the stories and traumas of settlement and unsettlement reflected and held in the land. King James's army camped just north of Dundalk before the Battle of the Boyne. And not far from that site on the edge of the M1 motorway north to Belfast is a monument to the Brown Bull of Cooley, heroic animal of the saga of the Thornbow Coolinia. According to this epic, one of Europe's oldest, Queen Maeve of Connacht came here to the Cooley Peninsula to steal a magnificent brown bull and a battle was fought all through the land that is now County Louth. By the side of the M1 motorway on the very tip of the Cooley Peninsula I meet artist and sculptor Michal McKeown to view his magnificent bull sculpture and take stock of the long reach of old conflicts. Five metres from the horns to the tail, and it's just slightly over three metres of height. Three of his legs on the ground, and the front left leg lifted up, pawing the ground, the bull with his head down, horns pointed forward, and I got my inspiration from looking at an old shilling, the bull on a shilling. And of course, the, that's what it is, that beautiful yeah, image from the old right, coins right. of the bull. Ah, oh, it's wonderful. That's where I got it. Yeah. It's splendid there yeah. and really eye-catching as you drive up towards Newry Indeed, and Belfast. And it looks lovely under different conditions. I've seen it covered in snow and it was spectacular. The saga of the battle for the brown bull of Cooley was written 1,200 years ago. The bull was defended from attack by the warriors of Ulster, which would have included men from this land of Loo. But it, that kind of warrior spirit is still intact here, isn't it? I would hope so, yeah, yeah. And in terms of the county, Michal, that's still a very deep connection. Oh, very much so. And the dog people still feel themselves more at home with the north of Ireland than with the south of County Loud. It is there's extraordinary layers of mythology, of history, of life, all of it in here from this, from the bull, from yeah. the sagas. Very special county. It is indeed. Maybe this is why I never left it. I still think it's great. What do you think defines it? 
the people, I think. I think it's the people. Loud people are very, very, what we call homely people. They love coming back to County Loud. There's been a lot of emigration from here, but you, you will find loud people in New York and everywhere. There's a friend of mine actually in, in New York called Tommy Smith. He's been in New York since he's been 16 and he, he runs a radio station over there. And you'd still think, you'd say, Tommy, you're from Lockbridge. Oh, I am indeed. How'd you know? <laughs> <laughs> the, the Yankee accent didn't, no, didn't change his. No, didn't change at all. No, no, no. no. Great. Long may it be so. Yeah. Michal, so lovely to meet you. Grimina Malcolm. Nahabre, Nahabre. The old jail in Dundalk was built just after the famine in 1853. By 1915, it was no longer in use, but was revived in 1918 to jail IRA prisoners. Today, it's a museum and home to the Oriel Cultural Centre. But in 1922, it was the site of the largest jailbreak in Europe. 105 anti-treaty IRA men, those who opposed the Anglo-Irish Treaty that resulted in the partition of Ireland, escaped through a hole blasted into a formidable cut stone wall surrounding the jail. On the main road, outside the jail, I meet guide Quelon McGill Maguire, who points to an unassuming patch of plasterwork, the site of that escape. So on the day of the 27th of July, 1922, the Jellignite was put inside pillowcases. So it was nicknamed Cheddar by the members that were breaking them out. They detonated the explosion and also threw in three hand grenades. That was to disorientate the guards. The prisoners were in exercise at that time and 105 of them escaped by crawling on their hands and knees through the wall. They didn't want to put too much Jellignite because otherwise the entire wall would have collapsed and then they would have had to crawl over the rubble to get out to freedom. So but it was a really precise operation. That would be really carefully planned if you were gauging how much gelignite to use to blow a hole in the wall sufficient to let the men out but not knock the whole structure. Absolutely. It was done by Ivor Monaghan, who was the head of the operation to free the prisoners of the 4th Northern Division of the IRA. So the hole in the wall is about one metres high by about two metres wide. The explosion uh, destroyed lots of windows in Dundalk, so lots of windows were blown out and lots of bricks work was destroyed in the area. So just down this street is Anne Street and that's where the old RIC station was and that's where the pro-treaty guards would have been. Uh, so it was a big deal and it was a huge moment in Dundalk's history. But there was nobody killed in the, in, in the incident? No one was killed. And how did the men get away? You know, were there cars waiting for them here? There were cars waiting for them, but unfortunately the cars didn't work. They didn't start in time. So a lot of them had to escape, unfortunately, by foot. So obviously this road here is the RD road, so this would go all the way out to the countryside where they could melt away into the background and then regroup later on. But quite a few of the men were, were recaptured fairly quickly, weren't they, like over the next few weeks? Over 60 men were recaptured, so it was 
they were the authorities were very good at being able to capture them again and to put them back in prison. The Fourth Northern Division, though the other members that did escape and evaded capture, regrouped and then tried to take Dundalk again in August. And there obviously had to be a very clear line of contact and connection between the men inside and those outside. There were messages smuggled inside and outside between the prisoners. There were only 17 guards on duty, so the governor had complained earlier in the week that there wasn't enough men, and also they'd only been given batons, which they wanted guns to really be able to enforce their authority. So when the explosion... On the morning of the 27th of July at 7.15, Frank Aiken told his men to go out and march in the exercise yard. So he told them that something was about to happen he was letting on but he didn't really let on and then obviously when the explosions happened they all ran straight away to the hole in the wall to escape after the hole was created in the wall there were two guards permanently stationed here to make sure that there was not going to be another attempted breakout although 105 prisoners escaped there were still 30 prisoners inside so they didn't want the rest of the 4th Northern Division of the IRA to be broken out this astonishing piece of history and to think that it's just over 100 years ago. I mean, it's, you can almost imagine men coming out through this blown out wall and legging it up the road there. You're listening to The County Measure with Vincent Woods and we're in County Louth. Jinx Lennon is hard to categorise, somewhere between protest poet and one-man hard rap band. He's from Dundalk, is never less than original and has written a new piece for us. Inspired by something Antrim-born actor James Nesbitt said a few years ago, to the effect that he thought the only way Ireland would become a united 32 counties again would be if it was called something different, something like United Ireland. Let that man have his bonfire night come mid July, come mid July. Burn the Palestinian flag and the Pope's effigy in the sky. Would you let him have his bowl or hash on his big crown, on his big crown? Walk with a triumphant march to Armagerman down. Cause it might hurt your pride. Are you letting your ancestors down? You might die inside. Are you letting your relatives down? Oh, you might think something so and you believe it's so, but if it's not so, make you so and so. All right, Sinn Fein. Take up the sour hash and the big mud flaps if you dream of the United Island. You better stop kissing the old grass calves if you dream of the United Island. Many of you are willing to go, but most of the rest just don't want to know. If you hate the man, can you share the land? That's you and your United Island. You let that man sing his Fenian song Come Easter time, come Easter time Walk around in drunken pride And fall down in the night Would you let him have his old language From ancient times, from ancient times Or call him scum The kingdom come to the beat of a lambic drum Cause it might hurt your pride Are you letting your ancestors down? You might die inside Are you letting your relatives down? 
Oh, I know right well the Orange Order comes out in Sundays to get their rallies and their petrol and their diesel and their broccoli and their wine. Maybe not the petrol. Take out the sour hash and the big mud flaps if you dream of the United Island. You better stop kissing the old grey scab if you dream of the United Island. Many of you are willing to go, but most of the rest just don't want to know. If you hate the man, can you share the land? That's you and your United Island. My daughter was a pure Celtic blood man. Ancestors came from to the Dan and my great big brand was a Protestant lady. Married a Catholic and lost her dowry. Take off the sour hash and the big mud flaps if you dream of the United Island. You better stop kissing the old grey scabs if you dream of the United Island. Many of you are willing to go, but most of the rest just don't want to know. If you hate the man, can you share the land that you're in your United Island? Take up the sour hash and the big mud fluffs if you dream of the United Island. You better stop kissing the old grey scabs if you dream of the United Island. Many of you are willing to go, but most of the rest just don't want to know. If you hate the man, can you share the land? That's you the United Island. Shot! Bowling, bowling, nice ball. Good play all round, well done. You wouldn't automatically associate Louth with the game of cricket. But tucked behind the Lily Whites home at Oriel Park, we find another group that sometimes don their whites for Dundalk, Dundalk Cricket Club. Well played. They're training on the day we meet and player and committee member Rahil Kumar explains what's happening. In simplest terms, you've got one team that's throwing the ball and another team that's got a bat and is trying to hit the ball. Come on, guys. Keep it coming. And as a batsman, your aim is to hit the ball and then you run between the wickets. Shot, shot. Bowling, to me, is the hardest skill because you've got two different types. You've got fast bowling and spin bowling. And... uh, when you meet a fast bowler, it's frightening. You've got a guy going along and he's banging the ball down, travelling at 90 mile an hour at you, right? So you can imagine you've either got to hit it or duck out of the way or just let it get your bails over. And this guy can bowl very fast. My name is Sakijan. I'm coming from Pakistan just for cricket. And I believe you're the star already. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Doing wonders for Dundalk cricket. Yeah. yeah. We've got huge hopes in this young lad and hopefully we can help him go up the leagues because we know he's too good for our league, but we'll take what we get. Uh, obviously, if you get a star player in your team, you're not just going to let them go straight away. I'm curious to see a cricket ball up close. So Raheel hands me one. It's my first time to hold a <laughs> cricket ball, ball yeah. a professional cricket ball. All right, fair bit of weight in it and it goes at a hell of a speed doesn't it when you actually bowl well the speeds depend upon how much you 
deliver your ball quick from your arms. You left-handed? Yeah, I'm left-handed, yeah. So as a left-hander, as far as I with the new ball, always goes with the shine. When you say shiny, the shiny side, yeah. is that literally the side that is... That is polished, yeah. Yes, the, is the polished from, polished from this, okay. What you're trying to do is you're trying to scruff off one side. The shiny side is where the ball will move towards because the air is traveling faster on that side. So pressure just lets it go. Oh, well bowled. And were you playing cricket from the time you were quite young? Yes, I've, I've been playing since I was four or five years old. I've never been that good because <laughs> our parents always said do academics and, and stuff. So we always played on, on club level, but some people are very passionate about it and they do excel. It's a fundamental sport of enjoyment. It's totally getting involved with your team, your teammates, and everybody's got a position and everyone's got a responsibility. Um, we're trying to get girls into the team as well. The interest is certainly there. We've had five or six different ladies approach us who want to play cricket. Um, but you haven't got, quite got enough for a team yet. You haven't got enough for a team. Yeah. That'd be great to get a women's team together yeah, as well, the full team. Be, yeah. You're listening to The County Measure. We're in County Louth. Coming up, cycling and soccer in Drada, tea and hens in Carlingford, the loud measure and at home with the Mary Wallopers. You're listening to the County Measure and we're in County Louth. Sunny Saturday afternoon in Dundalk and what better way to spend an hour or so than in the company of the Merry Wallopers. The Merry Wallopers couldn't be from anywhere but loud. Hello. Their music and song raw and driven and uplifting. Should we come in or will he come out? The Dubliners crossed with the pogues, shaken and stirred with cod liver oil and orange juice and a dash of some wild spirit distilled and handed around in a Dundalk pub. Vincent. Vincent. Charles. Charles, great to meet you. I meet them in their small terraced home from home in the town brothers Charles and Andrew Hendy and their friend and musical companion Sean McKenna. Um, uh, <laughs> tell me then about the music that came out of here, the songs. I presume that as well as the crack that you had here, there was a, you know, a fair bit of, of serious planning and making of music and, and getting the Mary Wampers together. Yeah, well, uh, actually, you're kind of wrong there. Yeah, that's uh, planning. <laughs> planning. Sorry to tell you, but uh, we <laughs> actually only wrong. started. Uh, we only started the Mary Wallopers because we were really poor, and uh, we were living here on tins of Tesco beans. Have you ever had Tesco beans? They're no, not, this, this, not, the sauce isn't the same. And it's 17 cent a can. Probably right. gone up now. We were, we were definitely up. putting on, like, we had a hip hop group, and, like, we were, a few of us were in different bands and stuff, and, like, we'd be putting on DJ nights, and we were constantly doing. Uh, creative stuff from the house and then I suppose the Mary Wallopers was, was our outlet to just have a bit of crack where we weren't really focusing on anything we were doing and then gradually we just kept getting asked to do it more and more And then, well we were certainly 
aware of the trick that you go into a pub and ask for pints if we sang ballads and then we prime incentive. that was the prime incentive at the start I can remember the first Even day we did it we went to the first pub at the top of town and I asked him if we could play tunes and he said no so he walked into the second one and asked if we could play tunes for pints and he said no we went into the next one eventually we yeah, found out what pubs would give us drink yeah, and, which and ones wouldn't and i tell you one thing we tortured them pubs <laughs> we got to know uh, we weren't very good at that stage but uh, now we're really good and we're uh, like <laughs> now they're all trying to give us money and pints got a pair of sand shoes got a hell of a funny God liver oil and the you. Going back though to Dunleer, there was music in the family, wasn't there? Yeah, our, our f- dad kind of taught himself the piano and the accordion, and then when we were younger, the first instrument we tried to play was the accordion. Our father found an accordion in the dump. He worked as a bulldozer driver in the dump. He found an accordion in the dump and put it into the cab of his bulldozer and then taught himself how to play it I think he was very much into the idea of doing stuff yourself like he built his own windmill and like he built us a swing that was bigger than the house and like I remember one time we asked him for a go-kart and he like uh, he was like I'll make you a go-kart so he, he got this old lawnmower and like he took the blades off it he, no, took, he, he took the blades off it thankfully but uh, it just used to perpetually speed up and it had no brakes and stuff like that but he was trying to kill us he didn't do a very good job <laughs> no brakes, no <laughs> the name the Mary Walpers where does it come from well, it, it comes originally from Sean's family. So yeah. uh, My dad lived down the quay and he's always referring to this boat that was there when he was a child called the Mary Walloper. Anytime he'd pass the boat, he'd go, oh, there's the Mary Walloper. But uh, it turns out you remembered it wrong. It's actually called the Maggie Walloper. But we found out only in the last month that the boat was named after a sex worker from Offaly who used to work in the docks and they named the boat after her. That's way cooler. That's even better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Even better. What a great... Yeah. Source for a name. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're happy enough of it. I really love the sound. I have to just, yeah. Somehow it's real, it's unique. Thank you very much. Yeah. You must be a bit of a scumbag yourself, yeah. yeah. I love the place names of Louth, R.D. and Tarman Fecken and Anagassen, rich on the tongue and in the mind. You wonder how newcomers to the county come to know these names and their origins, how to pronounce the mix of hard and soft sounds, vowels and consonants. Many of the migrants and refugees learning English in Dundalk are, in their minds, still back in their own home place. Almost all of the exiles we meet have come here from Ukraine and the organiser of the volunteer English language classes is from Chile. My name is Angel Marroquin from Santiago in Chile. Now I am community worker here in Cultura Migrant Centre in Dundalk. And how did you come to live here in County Loud? I came to Ireland because my wife, she was studying a PhD in Trinity College. And I left my job in order to support my wife. And here you are. <laughs> yes. Hi, uh, Vincent. Oh, hi, I'm Olivia. Olivia, good to meet you. Yeah. Hi there, yeah. Are you volunteering? We are, yes. Yeah, we're volunteering teachers. here in the conversation class. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how is it going? It's great, yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. It started about April. And we get different groups, different sort of people come. And we have two hours of just chats. Yeah, it's great. I'm Vlad Vladislav. 
I'm from Ukraine, from Kherson. It's uh, occupied now. I left there my uh, father and uh, grandmother. They are old already, so that's why I was troubled about them. My journey to here, it happened in March, so when the situation escalated, there was a risk of being raped because I'm a young girl and my sister, 15 years old, is also young. So our parents uh, were quite terrified. That's why they decided that we need to choose a country to be a, like a safe place for us. We traveled with an elderly Ukrainian lady. Uh, she was a mother of one of the Irish immigrants, and he found for us a place to stay. He found through friends and work a really nice elderly man uh, that lives in Dundalk. So he basically adopted two of us, like some stray kittens on the road. Really, he is a grandfather for us now. One day I was in the class. This person, a man, was walking with a big bottle of water, like a know five liters of bottle of water and he had been walking around Dundalk and he was just arriving from Mariupol in Ukraine and uh, during the class and during our conversation I was uh, aware that the water was so precious because in his mind he was still like uh, living in this uh, uh, city. It strikes me that in a way for any of us learning a language it's a journey into so much more than simply learning words. And I'm sure you're so aware of that in the work you do. This journey is a journey of empowerment because learning the language is power, but power to love the country that they are living at the moment and to love from a different perspective their own history. So as a teacher, you would say you are also learning? Yes, totally. They are teaching us a big lesson, especially about us, that we have work, that we have something to eat, we have water, and we cannot take for granted that things that we have. And in this sense, it's a powerful lesson, and we are learning from them. That's the thing. One of the keys here in Drogheda, famous bridge behind us. Love this profile, spires of Drogheda, something very special about it. And we're going to meet two people who are part of a campaign to get cycling centred back in Drogheda. I imagine the Drogheda-born painter Nano Reed must have cycled the town in her day. Today, though, that same cycle presents quite a few challenges and a push for a more cycle-friendly town has been spearheaded by local man Noel Hogan, who set up Drogheda Cycling Group two years ago. Noel, hello. Hi. Uh, How are you? Hi, Linda. Great to meet you. We meet Noel and fellow cyclist and advocate Linda Meehan on the busy quays of Drogheda, and they're going to take us for a spin through the town. Centre of Drogheda, as you can hear... Plenty of traffic noises everywhere, that's because there is plenty of traffic. Just stopping there, there's some pedestrians passing, it's a bit narrow there for everybody to share it. You can see some of the outlines of the old, nice old buildings in the past, an Art Deco post office. And here on the left is the famous St Peter's Church, where uh, as a child I was fascinated when I was brought here 
you know, the head of St. Oliver Plunkett is in there and uh, wow, a real head, you know, it was like, amazing, couldn't believe it. As a seven-year-old, it was macabre and uh, exciting and just amazing, the whole thing. <laughs> We're approaching St. Dominic's Bridge, which is one of two pedestrian bridges over the River Boyne in Drogheda. And we're now on the start of the Boyne Greenway, which is the old uh, towpath uh, that used to be used hundreds of years ago for riverboats uh, going as far as Navan. And the plan is to develop this into a greenway to go from here past uh, Newgrange, through Slane and on to Navan and eventually on to Trim. But you can actually travel all this way to the side of the Battle of the Boyne? Yes. Yes, That's it's right. five kilometres. And at the end of it is Old Bridge House where they have an interpretive centre about the Battle of the Boyne. Yeah. It's uh, great. It's wonderful to be able to do this. As a cyclist, one of the great things about this part of the country is, believe it or not, we get less rainfall than most other parts. If you ever check the Met Erin website, you will see that Dublin up to Clarehead is the driest part of the country. Also, although the town has some hills in it, there are a lot of flat routes around the place. So cyclists, you know, we kind of like to um, cycle in relatively flat areas. There's a lot of old buildings. There's a lot of stuff here um, for people to come and see. Tell me a little bit about, I know there was an an old women's bit of a cycle, not necessarily a marathon, but a a cycle out recently. Tell me a little Um, bit about it. Yes, as part of the Her Outdoors is called Women in Sport national event, we were asked to host an all-women cycling event. We're very keen to promote cycling for women. It's often seen as a man's sport. You know, like around town here, for years, there were like three women on bicycles, and I was one of them. Yeah, because, I mean, the women cycled a lot. I mean, my mother was a great cyclist, and that whole generation of women. Yeah, part of it, I think, is that women are often carrying other people, so they might have their children or their elderly parents in the car. And, of course, the shopping. I know it's the 21st century, but women do still fall into those roles. Like, I know in a recent survey in Dublin, they found that only uh, 27% of cyclists are women, which is kind of shocking because we're a little bit more than half the population. benefits I don't know where to start I mean for me it's coming into town to meet a friend there's so many parking spaces for bicycles and you don't have to plan in advance how much time you're going to spend there so we bump into a friend for coffee fabulous you can spend an hour or two and not worry about it back in the town we meet Geoffrey a new young cyclist when did you start three weeks ago well if I cycle from uh, my house to my school I'm just going to be like there's no problem. I'm late for school. No more homework for today. <laughs> and you'd be the fittest pupil in school as well. Win-win. You're listening to The County Measure and we're in County Louth. There's a strong following for soccer in Louth. Soccer has been largely a male game in the county up to recently, but that's changing. And Laura Donovan, the newly appointed head of women's football at Drogheda United FC, hopes it will change even more. United! United! (laughs) I meet Laura in the Drogs Stadium. Laura, great to be here. Lovely pitch. 
What brought you into to football in the first place? I suppose my family would have influenced me, my dad and my three brothers. I'd, uh, three brothers who, well, we didn't do much else but play football in the garden and kill each other. But um, my dad is, a, is an avid uh, Drawed United fan and Liverpool fan, Ireland fan and Celtic fan. So I suppose uh, it was football always on the telly. But there was very little opportunities actually to play soccer when I was younger. So I actually ended up coaching at 14 instead of playing because there was nowhere to play and uh, didn't get to start playing until I was 17 when I went to University of Limerick to study. So wrong way around, but uh, <laughs> that's the way it was for me, you know. You got there. Yeah. yeah, and it's great to see this change in women's soccer. I mean, do you see a shift with girls now coming into soccer? Are you conscious of it here in Drogheda? Yeah, I have to say it's, it's definitely changed in the positive way. Locally, the Loud School Girls League is after just growing and growing and so it's only four years old and we're, we're seeing players coming through now that you know are getting international call-ups and stuff like that at, at the underage uh, level which is absolutely massive but the the pool of players is growing the interest is growing the support from a media point of view is growing and it's absolutely brilliant to see and you're a school teacher as well I mean do you see girls wanting to come in to sport more and more yeah, and I think they need to see the positive role models like to turn on the telly and to be able to see there's women playing the match. That gives the young girls, I suppose, the courage to say, I want to play football, where do I go? And then uh, they realise there's an opportunity. Whereas when I was younger, I didn't have any female footballers as my role model. And obviously it would be great long term to see an, an Irish national team, a women's soccer team, get into the World Cup. I mean, that is obviously a longer-term goal, but it has to be there. Well, it's, it's closer than we think, I suppose, because once the Ireland women's team qualify for a major tournament for the first time, that's where there'll just be an absolute explosion in the country with girls playing football and wanting to play football. And, you know, and I think that would be... I, I would just love to see it. We stopped in Omid, lovely coastal town, lovely harbour, and I spotted somebody selling shellfish, one of my favourite things. I'll have to go and check it. Omid is a small town on the Cooley Peninsula overlooking Carlingford Lock. There was a time when you could board a train here and end up in London, a time when Victorian day-trippers from down promenaded here. It's in the heart of the old Ulster Gaelic lands of Oriel. The land around was poor and many people survived by selling fish in the town. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? How are you doing? What have you left? Not a big lot really. Okay. Now, we don't have a big selection. We've mussels, we've prawns, yeah. we've oysters. Yeah. We're out, of, we're out of the winkles now okay. at the minute. Do you know, I have, I'm not sure I've ever had winkles. They're tiny, aren't they? Like... Winkles. Yeah. Yeah, they're like a snail. Snails yeah. in the sea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, no, I'll tell you what I'll take. Um, I'll take. Uh, Not far from Omid is the beautiful coastal town of Carlingford, 
The name comes from Old Norse, Carlingfjord, the narrow sea inlet of the Hag. The town retains its medieval layout and traces of the old gates and shapes. Today it's a thriving tourist venue with a great meeting of north and south, the ferry from County Down bringing scores of people south and the M1 with the small diversion bringing visitors north, a great meeting and melding of accents and car registrations and general good humour. The unlikely named Ma Bakers on Baker Street in Carningford, established in 2010. Uh, they're trying to entice stags and hens in to Noné, the air tune of Noné, never. Um, and why not? But uh, Carningford's such, such a picturesque town. Really lovely, lovely spot. It's also a big draw for hen and stag parties. And one of the essential stops on the more sedate stag or hen weekend is the lovely Ruby Ellen's Tea Rooms, where Dorina Finnegan pours us tea and talk. Dorina, tell me a bit about the tea rooms and who comes here. So the tea rooms is in its eighth year, so it's very successful little business, um, a family-run and family-owned business, and we get all sorts of um, clientele. We get our locals, of course, and then we get um, huge business from hens and stags, and very friendly um, families and cyclists love it. Dog lovers love it. We get all sorts. <laughs> and it's really colourful. And inside of that, I was struck by the variety of teapots, all oh, yeah, the all lovely, all yeah. everything. It's, yeah. it's terrific. So I can see why people would love to well, come that's here. that's thanks to Donna now, who, um, that's her brain behind it all. She's a very artistic brain, and it's completely her idea, so it is fantastic. Is it something of a staple for, we'd say, for hens and stags to visit yeah. here and have, it their, is. have their cup it of tea? It is. I'll have their cup of tea. Um, more so the fries that ups with the stags the afternoon <laughs> the tea for the heads oh the morning after it's very <laughs> funny watching a big burly man with a little teacup in his hand <laughs> And the it, might be, it might be a bit of a shake yeah about. a little bit of a rattle going on um, no and the hens love the afternoon tea it's fantastically presented so it's gorgeous and I think were you were you on a hen here yourself I was <laughs> about three weeks ago I was calling myself a unicorn <laughs> not only a local <laughs> but on a hen in the village <laughs> yeah. the atmosphere is great it's, it's brilliant like we wouldn't really get to see that, you know, and come out at night time. Like, we'd kind of stay away because it is so busy, so. Yeah, well, I, I know hens and stags a bit from, uh, from Kirk and Shannon and Leitrim. Yeah. So I, I grew up quite close to there. And yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're great and they, re- they bring a lot of business to That's places. That's what I mean. We're yeah. employed here for a reason. Like, they do keep it coming in. So, I mean, why not? It's a great spot and... Yeah. Uh, I'd be really delighted to be here. Lovely. <laughs> Looking forward to my cup of tea now. Your cup of tea and a bit of cake. Yeah. <laughs> All homemade. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> better. The musical landscape of Loud is brilliantly mixed and unexpected. There's a strong traditional music theme here with the Shanno singing and old music of Oriel informing depth and style. There's a strong following for country and western and there's a remarkable legacy of contemporary music built up by Louth Contemporary Music Society and its founder Eamon Quinn.
At the heart of performance and composition in the county is musician and composer Zoe Conway, who has written a new work called The Loud Measure, especially for this programme. Here's the ferry coming in from Cantadan. We leave Louth by water. How are you doing? Not so bad, what Good. Good. On the Carlingford Loch ferry from Green Ore to Greencastle, County Dan. Thousands of people cross here every year, the border invisible beneath the slate grey surface. The Morn Mountains ahead, coolly in our wake, the shape of a sleeping mythical hero Finn McCool traced in the hills. Ivor, the captain, shows us photos of this ever-changing strip of water on his mobile phone. Holboline lighthouse, like a minaret in the shadows of the shortest day of the year. Really? It's a beautiful crossing. It's my first time to come across yeah. here. Really? Yeah. Come on a good day, or yeah. Great, I always bet your office isn't as nice a scenery as mine. <laughs> <laughs> certainly, certainly not. Loud, a county of Leinster so closely linked to Ulster, a county of grit and grace, spiralling music, tough history and defiant humour. The measure here is deep and there's a shimmer of light on the water. The county measure will continue next month when we'll be in Leash and later in the year in Armagh. Till next time, travel well 
and Treasure Place and County. County Measure with Vincent Woods is part of our Decade of Centenary Celebrations here on RTE Radio 1. The programme was produced by Elizabeth Larragie. For any suggestions for the series on your county, please email county at rte.ie. Well, the news at 11 is next, but after getting a taste for them on the County Measure, we've got some time for some more from the Merry Wallopers. Here they are with the Turf Man from RD. They took a walk one morning in Dundalk I met a jolly tart man on the road as I did walk A friendly conversation came between this man and me Well, that's how I came acquainted with the tart man from our day We chatted very freely as we walked along the road He said my ass is tired and I'd like to shed me load I've had no refreshment since I left me home, you see And I'm weary out of travelling, said the tart man from our day Your cart is worn, your ass is very old It must be twenty summers since that animal was old You open the cart and tramp that out September 43 Well he cantered for the midwife, said the third man Oh yes, he said, the cart is worn with some tough old Irish wood It must have been on your way since the day and all was blood The axle hasn't wanted for he's in one year out of three The good old paddock axle said the third man come our day Respectfully, but well, I hope to meet some future day with the tough man coming in. 